Y'all, you remember the, uh, the, the, the trilogy that came to the theaters, Lord of the Rings? Remember that? Um, before I went and saw the movies, uh, I'd never read the book. That's how cultured I am. I'd never read the books. And uh, you were, what was the name of the third one? Do you, I mean, the middle one, the middle one. What's the name of the murder? Anybody remember that? Two Towers. Okay, well, see, here's the deal. I didn't know that one ended the way it did. And if you went into that movie not knowing it ended the way it did, which was really no ending at all, you're kind of left disappointed and kind of left, really? That, that's, that's it for three hours? And I've got to wait another year for the next one. Well, welcome to today's sermon. Because that, that's the way today works, is uh, Brandon started last week. There, this is kind of a mini-series inside the series of Romans that we're going through. And uh, Paul has spent the first eight chapters theologically breaking down the grand narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And then he gets to this little mini-series before he gets into the practical stuff in 12, 12 and on uh, in, in 9 and 11. And, and the way it kind of works is chapter 9, principally, is about the sovereignty of God. God's complete sovereignty over uh, the acts of man and over everything in the world. Okay? But when we get to chapter 10... It almost takes an opposite point of view and it looks at man's complete responsibility. And then by the time we get to 11, it talks about God's faithfulness. Now, now here's what's going on in these texts. Um, and, and to be honest with you, we're, we're not doing justice to them because to do justice to them would take us about six months to really dive into some of the history and what's going on. But here's, here's the deal with these texts. I think Brandon ended last week with saying something to the effect of sometimes we have to let our minds suffer and let God be God. Do you guys remember that? Because here's, here's the deal. If you look at the idea of God's complete sovereignty and man's complete responsibility, in our Western minds, those two seem to collide and they don't fit together very well. And, and what happens, because we are Western Americans and we have to have it figured out and we have to know this is the way it's going to be, we have these what we call denominational splits. And so you have one team who will read chapter 9 and say, this means exactly what it says, and now we'll make 10 fit into that. And then we have another denominational team that says, 10 means exactly what it says, and we'll make 9 fit into that. We just believe that they both mean exactly what they say, and sometimes we can't make them fit into each other. And we have to let God be God, and we have to allow our minds to suffer. Because what the Bible seems to do that we can't seem to do is they hold the responsibility of man very high, the Bible does. It holds the sovereignty of God very high, and it doesn't seek to explain the two away from each other. And that's really what these two chapters do. So, um, here's kind of the backdrop of Romans 9 through 11. First of all, here's what you need to know. These, these three chapters are not primarily about the Jews. They're not. They're not about the Gentiles, and primarily they're not about the church. These three chapters are about God primarily. They tell us more about God than they do about anything else. Okay? Now, as far as context goes, here's what we know. The entire book of Romans is written to a church in Rome uh, that is experiencing a lot of persecution. Therefore, there's a lot of despair and there's a lot of hopelessness. Okay? We also know this. We know it's a young church and probably, from what we know, it's kind of leaderless. There was no super church planner that showed up in Rome and decided we're going to plant this sucker and make it, you know, what we want to make it. All that we know and the best we can tell is that 
uh, these, you know, Acts 2 experience happened. There were some people uh, lived from Rome in uh, around Peter's sermon. They heard the deal. They went back. And the gospel just did what the gospel does. And a church just kind of formed out of that. So they're young church. They're kind of leaderless. They don't have uh, so, uh, some of the theology that Paul is explaining. But here's what else we know. We know that every letter in the, Old Te- in the, New, sorry, in the New Testament is written into a specific context, usually with specific questions. We don't usually know those questions because all we get is the response. So we get to play the whole Jeopardy game. What, what, is, what is he responding to when he, when he writes this? And when he gets to 9 to 11, here's what I think is going on. I think after he goes through the narrative of fall, creation, redemption, and restoration, Paul begins to address some of the divisions and the misunderstandings between the Jew, Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And 9 through 11 is his, let's hit pause on this and let's address this deal. Because there's, and we know this from chapters 14 and 15, that there's some great division going on between the Jews and the Gentiles. And they probably border uh, on, on the extremes of the Gentiles are a little prideful and think, look, God has let you go because you did your deal and you denied God and now we're one up. You guys had your chance. And now you've got to do it our way. On, on the other hand, you have the Jews which is probably a minority, so they already feel picked on a little bit. And they're thinking, no, 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 no. We're God's people. We, we're, we're the ones who are given the promise, and we're going to do it our way, and you can't tell us not to, and you shouldn't be doing the things you're doing. And then on top of that, as we get into 11, we'll see this. The Jews are a little d- discouraged because they feel like God has forsaken his word to them. Okay? But we're not going to be in 11 today. Like I said, we're going to end weird in 10 And so Paul ends kind of weird in 10. Because by the time you get to the end of 10, you can almost see, and Paul argues it weird, it's almost like he's saying, yeah, who you used to be, you're not anymore. Okay, but then 11, he goes and redeems that. So here we go. Here's what we're going to do. We're just going to uh, follow the text as the outline. And then in your notes, kind of have summary statements. Starting in verse 1, Paul says this. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, speaking of the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So here's the deal as Paul gets into this. His heart is broken. His heart is fractured for these people. He loves them and his heart is broken. And by the time we get to 11, you feel this angst just begin to build up because Paul says something crazy like, here's what I, if if I could do this, I would swap, I would give them my salvation and take their curse. This is Paul's heart for the Jews. Even though he's an apostle to the Gentile, he cannot rest because the people that he loves are cursed, they're blind, and they're ignorant, and it hurts him. And I think Paul feels this way for, for three reasons. Number, number one, or a few reasons. Number one, they're his kinsmen. This is where he came from. These people represent him. And back then and still today in, in Eastern cultures, they didn't have this individualistic thing going on. You were your community, and your community was you. And so if something was happening to your community, it hurt you deeply. 
And everything Paul was, except for, well, even including his faith from, in Christ, comes from his heritage with the Jews. Another reason is, Paul, Paul knows their story. He knows that of all the peoples on the earth, that God specifically chose them to reveal his grace to humanity. He could have chosen anybody. The Bible says he didn't, he didn't do it because they were a great nation. In fact, they were small. He didn't do it because uh, they, they obeyed perfectly. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, we're told that they're a rebellious people. But Paul knows out of everybody on the earth, he chose them to make himself known. And even though he chose them, he gave them the prophets, he gave them the word, he walked with them through the desert. They've now turned their back on him. He also knows that they long for the salvation that was promised. It's not that they turned their back and say, we don't want the salvation. They still long for it. They still want it deeply. And it hurts Paul's heart because he knows they long for this salvation. But at some point in the journey, they decided to do it on their own. According to what Romans tells us, they began to rely on their own works to produce righteousness instead instead of relying on God. Paul's heart is broken as he begins this. He goes on and he says in verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that the age of the Torah is over. And Jesus is the, sal- Jesus is the way to salvation for all humanity. The age of the Torah is over and Jesus is the way to salvation for all humanity. In other words, here's what he's saying. All the promises, all the feasts, all the celebrations, the festivals, all the hero characters, all the rituals like, like circumcision and such, and the sacrificial system, the trilateral leadership of prophet, priest, and king, everything that made them distinct, everything that made them unique, that was God speaking to them, came together and was fulfilled, completed, and finished in the work and person of Christ. The author of Hebrews goes so far to even say that everything that made the Torah the Torah was just a foreshadowing of what was to come. It was actually pointing towards Christ. And though the age of the Torah is over because of Christ, it's because of Christ that we can actually understand the Old Testament now. Paul is saying that the Torah had reached its goal and found its conclusion in Jesus. He goes on in verse 5 and he says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Verses 5 through 8, is ba- they're basically saying this. That reliance on personal ability only leads to further misguided ideas and reason. Reliance on personal ability only leads to further misguided ideas and reason. Paul is actually quoting Moses from, I think it's Deuteronomy 30. And what Moses is telling his people, the more you rely on your own ability, the more you rely on your own reason and think you've got it taken care of, 
it actually hardens your heart more and leads you further and further away from the God that you are actually trying to pursue. So it's not like they're saying, I don't want to pursue God. What they're saying is, I, like, actually like Lamar was saying, I want to make God the king of my kingdom. And so I'm going to do what I'm going to do and hope that he's going to honor it. And I'm going to pursue God my way. But in the hope of pursuing this God in the way they wanted to pursue this God, it actually drove them further away. He picks up in verse 9 and he says this. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 9 through 13 is this. It's that belief and response, this is in your notes, belief and response are the marks of the one people of God, not moral ability, ethnicity, or birthright. Belief and response are the marks of the one people of God, not moral ability, ethnicity, or birthright. In other words, there are, no, there are not two peoples of God, there is one. And they are not marked by their ethnicity, they are not marked by which country they've been born into. They are marked by their belief and their response to the call of God in their lives. Paul says two things in this, in this line of verses that show us this. Number one, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's a very popular verse. We've all heard that, right? Right, that's our little, that's our little altar call verse. Now, that there seems to be a contradiction in Scripture because back in Matthew 7, Jesus says, many of you on that day, talking about the day of judgment, many of you on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, but I will say to you, depart from me, for I never knew you. But yet Paul says, all we have to do is confess, Lord, Lord, and you will be saved. And what I think we've done is we've taken what Jesus is saying that you can't do and substituting it for what Paul says we must do. When you go back and you study this out and you look in the Greek, here's what Jesus is saying. You cannot live the life that you want to live and simply just say, I'm your God, without having a life that shows it. It's not a statement. It's not a, an event. It's not an altar call you respond to and say, hey, look, I said the deal. Now I can live however I want, right? Because I said it. Jesus said to those who have that kind of mentality, I'm going to say, depart from me because I didn't know you. What Paul is saying, the word he uses for confess, if you think about the word confession, when you confess something, you are not making something come into being. You are stating something that already is. Are you with me? Here's what Paul is saying. Somebody who really follows God, someone who is really called by God, someone who is really saved, has nothing to do with where they were born, who they were born into, what 
uh, status they have. It has to do with those who follow me with their lives. And the words out of their mouth simply just follow that. Another thing many of us don't know about that statement, if you confess with your mouth, is that that's not just some statement Paul made up to fit into our little plan of salvation. Paul is actually quoting the prophet Joel. Joel gave this statement to the Jews as the unique people of God. And now Paul is saying, no, 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 that statement belongs to all of humanity. If you will simply confess, and then he applies it to Jesus as well. If you confess, this is not just a Jewish thing anymore, but this is a humanity thing. And if you confess and you live the life God has called you to live through belief and response, you will be saved as one people. He goes on and he says, another phrase he uses is, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The word here for distinction, the word here for no is no, none, zero. But the word for distinction is actually a word used for musical notes. As if to say, what you are producing as the Jews and what you are producing as the Gentiles is no longer different. Because you are the exact same now. It's the exact same note producing the glory of God to those who are saved. But even to dive deeper... What was it that made the Jews distinct that Paul says does not exist for them anymore? Says that they were his chosen. They were set apart specifically for him. Paul is saying no longer that's the Jewish people, but that's all of those who confess. They were specially loved and known by God. They were his peculiar people, a special treasure. They were set apart for him above all other people's. And Paul is saying that it's no longer just for the Jews. It includes them, but it is for all of humanity that confesses. The way of salvation for the Jews spoken by the prophet Joel is now given to the Gentiles. This verse right here is the good news for Arabs, for Asians, for Turks, for Americans, for every people on the earth. Because we are all included in the one people of God that is based on belief and response. Verse 14, he picks up and he says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. And he concludes and he says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. Verse 14 through 17 means this. The gift of salvation, the free gift of salvation that was given to us from no merit of our own. The gift of salvation includes responsibility of mission. The gift of salvation includes responsibility of mission. Here's what we have to know. That a very perfect, holy God chose to save us, a very unholy, unperfect people. For no other reason than he loved us and it was his will to be glorified through us. But his saving came with much responsibility. And that is to take his gospel, which is the power of salvation, to all people. People who don't know him. 
This is the responsibility. This is what it means to confess him as Lord. Those who confess him as Lord are those who take his truth, those who don't know. Because saving faith comes from hearing what is produced through the message that we have been given responsibility to take. God has chosen people from all different walks of life, from all different ethnicities. And those people are no longer marked by ethnicity, borderlines, or by belief and response. And that response is to follow Christ with our lives, but also to be on mission with him to those who don't know him. So there are three modern implications to Romans 10. Number one is our posture. The first posture we read about Paul is that he had a broken heart for the lost. Paul was not haughty. He did not think of himself as better. But his heart was deeply broken for those who did not know him, especially his people. I think what this is saying is that one of the signs that the Holy Spirit is really beginning to transform us is that when we look at those who don't know Christ, we don't feel better than, we feel broken for. So my question is, my question for me is, when I think of those that live around me, those who hobby around me, those who uh, I live around, is my heart broken for them? Is your heart broken for them? And I guess the better question is, if it's not, why? Why are we more concerned with our own lives than the lostness of those? Because Paul's heart for his people was so broken that he was willing, if he could have, trade his blessing for their curse. But I think another posture in Paul's heart was that of humility. Paul wasn't proud. Paul was not one who stood at an altar and told people how to live. Rather, he was one who kneeled at a cross and said, come join me in this journey. I wonder what our attitude is to those around us who don't know Christ. What do they see? Do they see a people who feel better than or do they see a humble people who says, oh, he's just as lost and broken? I would like to invite you on this journey with me. The other implication is that of hope, and that can go two ways. Our hope is, and the message that we have as a church, and the message that we have individually, the message that we uh, pontificate on Serve Austin Sunday, our hope is that people are pointed to Jesus, not self, morality, or good works. Our hope is that through us, the world sees Jesus, not our own ability or our difference as a church. Because the truth is, back to the hope thing, if people are pointed to everything like self, morality, and good works, and not Jesus, there is no hope. The only hope the world has is Jesus. The only hope that the Jews had was Jesus. But they were more convinced that their ability, their heritage, and their good works would get them there. And finally, posture, hope, and mission. We are to be the hands, the feet, and the voice of Jesus. We were given freely a great gift in salvation. But with that gift, great responsibility is included. Part of salvation, it's not like step two... But like we talked about a couple weeks ago, the three dimensions of salvation, it's, it's one. Part of our salvation includes our responsibility to be the hands, the feet, 
the voice of Jesus to a lost world. It's part of it. We don't get one without the other. It's who we are. It's who we've claimed to be as a church. It's not special for the pastors or the leaders. It's all of us. Acts tells us an interesting thing, that where you work, where you live, where your kids go to school, are not by accident. But before the foundations of the earth, God planned for you to live there, work there, and be there. And he did it so that those near you might find him. That is the responsibility found in Romans 10. Let's pray.